Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season eight, episode two, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2017 dark dystopian fairy tale, The Bad Batch. It was written and directed by Anna Lily Amirpour and stars Suki Waterhouse, Jason Momoa, Jim Carrey, and Keanu Reeves. Jim Carrey. Did you recognize him when you first watched this? You know, I knew that he was in the film and I was oh, like, okay. I kept my eyes peeled and I wouldn't have known it was him if I didn't know that he was a part of the cast. So Okay, because yeah. I had no idea. I'm watching this, and I mean, I finished the film, and I went back to look at who was in it, and I was like, well, that was Jim Carrey? Right? I was shook. It was, no it was insane. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So fresh off of her 2014 indie vampire love story, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, Amirpour immediately began work on her sophomore film, The Bad Batch. Inspired by Alejandro Jodorowsky's heavily symbolic western El Tapo and George Miller's desert dystopian Mad Max franchise, Amirpour set out to create a film in the same vein, but with some fairy tale aspects, including a female lead. And more on this later. In an interview with Dana Han Klein, Amirpour expressed that her initial idea of the Bad Batch came to her as a vision of a girl alone in the desert missing an arm and a leg. She went on to say how during this time when she had the vision, she was going through a really rough patch. She used the example of severe change, like when someone in your life dies or you go through a bad breakup or you move, and compared this to the girl all alone in the desert missing parts of herself relatable content Mm -hmm. yes (laughs) although it takes place in texas the bad batch was filmed in california where amirpour grew up and in an interview with caitlin tiffany she explained how she researched quote unquote ruin porn and found an airplane graveyard in lancaster california where a man had been collecting old wrecked airplanes for over 25 years and she would later use this graveyard for the cannibals home That's so interesting for someone to say, like, I'm just going to collect these dead old airplanes. (laughs) I guess this gentleman used these airplanes in other movies. Like, he had rented out these airplanes for other movies, too. Oh, nice. Okay. That makes sense. (laughs) But, I mean, I'm sure he started out just being like, I'm just going to collect airplanes. (laughs) Oh, my God. Could you imagine that? Like, we live in upstate New York, and we have all these, like, car junkyards. You live in California, and it's just casual, like airplane junkyards (laughs) yes (laughs) oh my god 
In the same interview with Tiffany, Amirpour said, quote, the bad batch. They were going to be in this roped off, empty, barren desert. And then I had this idea that there would be weird leftover parts of America from the 80s and 90s just left to waste, unquote. Which there is. There's a very heavy uh, 90s, 80s influence on this film, I think. Especially yeah. with the fashion. So. Oh, yeah. So she apparently found the large boombox at Burning Man and either purchased it or rented it so that she could use it for the party scenes with Keanu Reeves' character, The Dream. Nice. I definitely get a Burning Man vibe. Absolutely. <laughs> According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, the film had its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival on September 6, 2016. Shortly after, Netflix and Screen Media Films acquired SVOD and theatrical distribution rights to the film, respectively. However, Neon later acquired distribution rights. The film also screened at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 8, 2016, and it was finally released, uh, lim- it was had a limited release on June 23rd, 2017. Okay, so with a budget of $6 million, the film was actually a box office failure, technically, only making a little over $200,000 in theaters. And I don't have any numbers indicating how well it did on VOD, though. So it might have done okay, but I kind of doubt it. The film received mostly mediocre to negative reviews, with David Rooney of The Hollywood Reporter saying that, quote, The movie is overlong and not without draggy patches, but it's sustained enough to keep you watching, unquote. Wow. <laughs> to conclude, I'll end with two quotes. The first by Katie Reif, who says of the film, quote, its aesthetic is so current that it's oddly ahead of its time, and it's easy to imagine stoners in the year 2035, or whenever 2010's nostalgia comes around, admiring the film in between hits on their 3D printed bongs, unquote. <laughs> nice. And Trisha Olszewski said, quote, like Catherine Bigelow, Amirpour has similarly and successfully played with topics outside of those expected from her gender. In her last two films, Bigelow has taken on war. Now we have Amirpour to take on the gore, unquote. So with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. In a dystopian future somewhere in Texas, young Arlen is banished to the desert after being deemed undesirable. She's now part of what's called the Bad Batch. Not long after being banished, she's captured by cannibals who live in a small community in the desert. She's chained up and kept alive as they cut off and eat one of her arms and one of her legs. It isn't long after being mutilated that she tricks her captors into releasing her, killing some of them. She rolls back out into the desert aided by a skateboard, but she faints in the heat. She's found by a mute drifter who takes her to another compound called Comfort, where she gains a prosthetic leg and seems to be doing as good as she can be. Three months later, while out rummaging through garbage in the desert, she stumbles across one of the cannibals, a woman from the other compound. With a broken leg and her daughter in tow, the woman begs Arlen to have mercy on her, but Arlen kills her. The little girl follows Arlen until they reach Comfort, where Arlen buys her a rabbit. The mute drifter, who saved Arlen, watches the two from afar, seeing this all play out. 
Meanwhile, Miami Man, the leader of the cannibal group, waits for his wife and child to come back from their rummaging, unknowing that his wife was killed by Arlen and his daughter is now missing. He rides out into the desert on his motorcycle and finds his wife's body and asks the drifter where his daughter is. In exchange for a portrait of himself drawn by Miami Man, the drifter tells him to find comfort. Back in comfort, Arlen takes responsibility for the little girl, but loses her after taking a hallucinogen at a rave held by the Dream, the charismatic leader of comfort. The Dream finds the child and her rabbit wandering alone and takes her in to be cared for to be cared for by his harem of women, where he feeds her spaghetti. Still high, Arlen wanders into the desert and stumbles across Miami Man, who tells her that she is going to find his daughter for him in comfort. She doesn't admit to anything she's done, and even tells him that she doesn't know his daughter or her whereabouts. As they travel back to comfort together, Arlen learns that Miami Man is in with the Bad Batch because he's an illegal immigrant. She steals his knife and threatens to kill him, telling him that she hates his kind, but he's shot by another drifter in the desert who takes Arlen back to comfort after finding her with Miami Man. When she arrives, she begins her search for the missing child, feeling badly for leaving Miami Man in the desert to die. She finds the child in the Dream's mansion, and in order to extract her, pretends that she wants to join his harem, sneaking in a pistol with her prosthetic prosthetic leg. She takes one of the pregnant women hostage in exchange for the child. The Dream reluctantly gives her up, telling her to protect the rabbit at all costs. Arlen and the child flee the mansion, driving a golf cart out into the desert, eventually meeting up with a now-healed Miami man. The three reunite, and Arlen expresses that she wants to stay with him. The child tells her father that she wants spaghetti, but he kills and cooks her rabbit instead. Thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. Oh, you're welcome. So, the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes. Woohoo! Right. I was very pleased with that. Yeah. Um, especially since when you look at Nancy's Dream Team test, uh, was the sporting cast at least 50% women? No, it wasn't. So, I'm glad that wow. it at least passed the Bechdel test. Yeah. Did a woman write, direct, or produce or edit the film? Yes. It was written and directed by Amir Poor and produced by Megan Ellison and Sina Seya. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? Well, Suki Waterhouse is the main character and she's white, but there are a number of people of color in the film, including Jason Momoa. But uh, we'll talk more about this in a bit. Yeah. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. That's wild. I had never seen this film before doing this episode. So um, I was also kind of shocked. I just figured, I don't know. I I just figured there'd be representation. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, you thought wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Uh, I know. I know. Uh, okay. Let's start with The Real Bad Batch, Living Free, and The Wall. So, in the interview with Caitlin Tiffany, Amirpour explained how she met a real group of people in California who lived off the grid in the desert. Quote, in the movie where there's a skate park and all this graffiti and the village of comfort that's in the Salton Sea, in the desert over there in California. There's 10,000 to 20,000 people living off the grid. They just live there in the desert outside of the system. So I started going there about a year before making the movie and made friends with them. 
a lot of them don't have the internet and don't come to casting calls or anything. So I said, I'm going to be making a movie and there's going to be a party scene. So I would love if you would all come to the party. It's weird. You get to build this world and it's amplified surreal shit, but it's the real DNA of stuff that's here, unquote. It is a really interesting concept because in the film, there are a lot of people forced to live out in the desert, right? Like, that's what the Bad Batch is. And then there are these people who choose this lifestyle, who are higher on the totem pole, who could probably get out of that territory, but they choose to stay in comfort, like the dream. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of a shining example of white privilege. Like, you have the choice to pick whether or not you want to, like, quote-unquote, live simply in a society with fewer rules or constraints. But then you have these lower-class citizens who literally cannot escape, who are freaking eating each other. Like, there's an illusion of choice when the dream gives his speech to Arlen. And what he's telling her sounds so nice and it's great in theory because she's a young white female who has the option to join his harem. But, you know, she rejects that and I think she sees how wrong the system is and she doesn't want to play a role in that. For me, in my interpretation of the film, Arlen represents what it means to be kind of an ally, I guess, in kind of a fucked up way. But she basically says, like... (laughs) Fuck the American dream because it's all about inequality and I've been shitty, so I'm going to remove myself from that culture and do what I can to be better. Like, it, when you look at it from that perspective of, like, I'm a white person, so automatically I'm, like, ahead of the game. Whereas, like, you have this kind of subculture of people who are stuck and there's literally nothing that they can do to improve their station in life just because of the way that they look or how they are or, like, how Miami Man is Cuban. Like, he can't go anywhere. He can't do anything. Yeah, I really like that interpretation because we never find out what Arlen did wrong, so to speak, to become one of the Bad Batch. Mm -hmm. Like, it's left up to interpretation. Um, But what we do know is that she is from the South, of the USA based on her accent and she's not very educated she's pretty vapid Uh, yeah (laughs) and that easily could have been her societal flaw right like she's unintelligent and I mean Amirpour has said it herself that she doesn't identify with Arlen because this character has this unintelligent flaw basically yeah um so that might be why she's a member of the Bad Batch and has been rejected by society but she's also super racist and yeah i i have a feeling that's not why she's in the bad batch according to the society that she's been rejected from uh because like the that society itself sounds messed up but yeah. i mean she is in in the end like she's kind of racist so mm-hmm. i think her sort of metaphorically realizing that comfort is basically a hoax and not everyone is welcome at least not welcome without a cost is a really neat way to think of it abby and it's super relevant and if you have a mental illness or if you're an immigrant or a person of color or you're a woman or you're poor or you're all of the above you don't get help basically 
and like you don't deserve to be a squeaky clean American, so to speak. So it's awful. Yeah. And um, according to Peter Travers, quote, if you can't build a Trump-sized wall to stop immigrants and undesirables from polluting America the beautiful, just send them out into a wasteland outside of Texas to fend for themselves. Arlen, a human discard who's given the heave-ho, is told that no person within the territory beyond this fence is a resident of the United States of America or shall be acknowledged, recognized, or governed by the laws and governing bodies therein. Our president couldn't have said it better, unquote. I mean, there are so many instances in our nation's history that we could relate this story to. And I feel like it's not any coincidence that this film came out when it did. Mm, You know, apparently it is a coincidence, at least the Trump and the wall aspect of it, because the film was being written in 2015 and filmed, I think, at the beginning of 2016 and Honestly, I can't remember when he started spouting shit about the wall, but it was before that, at least according to Amirpour. Uh, But you were telling me earlier that this film reminds you of another film you like. Yeah, um, it's a film like The Trip. Like, it came out at a time when young people were trying to figure out another turning point in history. And, like, 2016 was a doozy of a year. And this movie... It feels like a reflection of that. Like, we were all these subgroups of people trying to figure things out, like where we stand with racism, gender, LGBT rights, poverty, all while trying to shake up the system with ideas from people like Bernie Sanders. And we were forming new communities and new ways of thinking. Not that that ever really stops, but 2016 was a huge year for that. Yeah, I agree with you. And another really interesting point to all of this, like Arlen becomes the caretaker of a young girl after she murders her mother. At least, like, we assume that that's her mother in the film. And then she loses her. And she, she she's just like, yeah, let me just take this acid and, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> and she feels guilty about it, but it's just kind of like, nah, like, whatever. Yeah. Um, And that is a huge reflection of the attitude of white people when confronted with their feelings about America losing thousands of children at Mexico's border. Like, I love the scene between Miami Man and Arlen when he talks to her about finding his daughter and she says, what if I can't find her? And she's just got this, like, attitude, like, well, it's not my problem. And he says, you will find her. (laughs) And he's, like, very ominous about it. And I loved that. Like, that really resonated with me because it was, like, someone putting their foot down and being like, you fucked up. You fix it. Like, I love that interpretation of it. And, you know, I also think that it's very interesting that we don't ever see America itself. Yeah. Because, like, because this is like a fairy tale, right? The strange land that the hero gets flung into is the main focus of the adventure. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, again, like the America that is now is almost too squeaky clean for the movie in itself, you know? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. not, the story is not there. The story is with these people who are downtrodden and dealing with all of this crap in their lives and um 
that sort of brings us to our next topic, which is the fact that this is a dystopian fairy tale. So in a number of interviews, Amirpour describes the Bad Batch as a fairy tale, and it always seems to take the interviewer by surprise, which boggles my mind because I totally see where she's going with this idea. Like, we talk about fairy tales a lot on the show, and we've compared a number of horror films to fairy tales, most notably Carrie and the original Suspiria. And I'll put links to those episodes in the show notes if you're interested in listening. But anyway, in its most basic form, a fairy tale is a story about magical and imaginary beings and lands, right? Which could describe this for sure. Like Amirpour said in her interview with Tiffany, quote, I don't know if you've seen a film called El Tapo. It's Jodorowsky's psychedelic western that he made in the 70s. And he also stars in it. It's really weird, really violent. It's the story of a quest of a man to understand man. It starts with a man and then he has a child and the child becomes an adult. It goes through all these stages of lust and sin and domination and all these things. It's very, it has a very male vibe on it, but I really love the story and the quest. So it was kind of like taking that feeling of an epic quest movie, but then making it more like Alice in Wonderland. So it's this girl that's thrown into this world with systems that pit people against each other. And she's just trying to figure out who she is constantly, unquote. Yeah, you know, I think people are used to the idea of a fairy tale being old, not necessarily like putting a futuristic twist on it. And I think ultimately the reason why this fits into that category so well is because it is like a harrowing tale. Like, it may not seem like it at first, but it's a dangerous story, and it's full of heroes and villains and wise old people and monsters, so... Right, and our and our main heroine learns something, you know? And I mean, like, fables are more about learning a lesson, I guess, than fairy tales, but... I guess maybe fables more have a moral, but like fairy tales have like like a warning almost, you yeah. know? Yep. And I think that Arlen does deal with the warning that is presented in this. And that kind of bleeds into our next topic, which is the meaning of comfort and the dream. Okay, so first of all <laughs> I yeah. I have to profess my love for Keanu Reeves here because, like, come on, who doesn't love Keanu Reeves and everything that he stands for? Right. Like, okay, I'm done. But no, but listen, I got to add. I got to add. Okay, okay. I just saw something where he is, like, one of the only or he is the only A-list male star who has who has been in, like, more movies directed by women than any other A-lister. Hell yes, that is what I'm talking about, Keanu yes. Reeves. And this is one of them, so there you oh go. Oh my god, I love him so much. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, but his this character was so good. Like I immediately thought of like a Jim Jones Hugh Hefner mashup. Yes. And I learned in an interview with IndieWire that Hugh Hefner was actually a huge inspiration for the Dreams character. And um Reeves said in the interview that he had been a fan of Amir Poor's first feature, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and he was pleasantly surprised to find that she had written the character of the dream with him in mind. And she said, I had your poster on my wall, FYI. She said the two of them looked to the Hugh Hefner documentary, American Playboy, as a template for the character. 
But collaborating was, what is this person? Let's have him wear white like Hugh Hefner. Psychedelic. He had these glasses. Then we found this great building for his place, Reeves said. It was like, this place needs more water. Ice cubes. And she was like, yeah, let's get more ice cubes. <laughs> Amirpour added that Reeves suggested the character should be growing tomatoes and basil. Yeah, he had vegetables and fruit, Reeves said. I'm nurturing. Mm, that's so interesting. Yeah. So something that I really liked about this character and setting is that it doesn't shy away from what it means to be a white savior. Mm, like, mm-hmm. from a distance, the dream makes comfort look like this wonderful place that he's built for, like, all these degenerates to congregate and make a life for themselves. But, like, is it really a life? They're still impoverished, but they're distracted by drugs and music. Like, mm. Mm. Yeah, it's... look over here, a shiny. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're not, you're not being stomped upon. Like, you're not being oppressed. No, I know. It, it's all an illusion that is used to keep him in power. And then he stumbles across this mixed-race child who seems not to have anyone, who cannot even speak for herself, and he takes her in and provides for her, but it's not out of the kindness of his heart. It's for his own benefit, like, to make himself feel like he's doing important work. And, like, this child has a family. She has a home. She just doesn't have a voice, which is how it is for a lot of kids in her position, like, i.e. the children who got lost at the border wall. Like, you know, Amirpour uses the idea of real human connection as a sort of comfort in itself. And the dream, air quote, seems to be connecting with everyone in comfort, but really he is above them and he knows it. Yeah. Right? Like you expressed. And the people below him might think that they have a connection to him, but it's not personal at all. So again, comfort is a lie. And in her interview with Tiffany, Amirpour says, quote, you felt tense throughout and then kind of relaxed at the end. Whatever human connection is, if you're in extreme circumstances, you can't relax. It's not like you're going to meet somebody for coffee. I do feel like the film is about connection. It doesn't necessarily have to be sexual. Any kind of connection feels like a relief in life. For a second, you're like, oh, wow, not all people are awful, unquote. Yeah. And You know, something else just popped into my head, too, about this movie. Like, the dream, when he's talking to Arlen about how, like, oh, I've created this life for you and I gave you plumbing so that you don't have to, like, spend time in your own shit. And, like, yeah, Arlen escaped from the cannibals because she literally smeared her own feces all over her body. Like, she used, like, it's gross. But she used that as a means to, like, get out of the situation that she was in. Mm-hmm. So it's like, like, great, like, you can give me all this stuff, but at the end of the day, like, I know that I'm capable of, like, pulling myself out of my own dark situation. Like, I don't need you for that. So, right, like, he tells her something like, I make shit go away. Yeah. Not, and then, but she used her shit to escape and to survive so yeah. it's like he's like, taking away that 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 motivation that she needs to survive almost seriously interesting so. uh, yes Ooh. 
You know, I think another reason why Arlen wants to go back to the desert with Miami Man and his daughter is because she realizes that they are genuinely good people who only do what they do to survive and live together, right? Like, that's that's what she did. Like, she is a survivor, and she's realizing that they are not too different from her. Mm-hmm. And it's real, and it's raw, and like we expressed, comfort is literally just a dream. And there's even a sign in everything that says this is not real. And... And a sign that also says um, something like, you don't enter the dream, the dream enters you, you know? Yikes. Yes. <laughs> That's how all those women got pregnant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, it's a bit too on the nose for my taste. But according <laughs> according to Guy Lodge, quote, the family values of cannibals are brought improbably to the fore. While the free living principles of comfort emerge merely as a sinister twist on conservative values, unquote. Ooh. Uh, Michael O'Sullivan also makes a good point and says, quote, Amirpour's film is also a kind of postmodern Adam and Eve story. Comfort may be Edenic, at least compared with the open desert, but it isn't necessarily a place where you want to raise a kid. <laughs> the bad The Bad Batch suggests that it might be better, or at least less delusional, to fend for yourself among people who make no secret about wanting to eat you, unquote. Wow. Yeah. And I also really love when Miami Man eats the rabbit. Same. (laughs) Like, he is basically being like, you know, this, this this represents something that it's useless if we don't eat it kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And uh, like this, this, his daughter wants spaghetti and he's like, what? No. Who do you think you are? <laughs> you <know>? like, <laughs> we have food right here and it's this rabbit. Let's just eat this, you know? And yeah, he sort of, she's becomes disillusioned and he sort of brings his daughter back to re- their reality. So. Yes. Oh my God. That was a great mm. scene. It was so know, sad, was, but it was so I know, good. I was, I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, damn. Okay, Miami man. Uh, Jeez. Yeah, so the dream the dream is a dream. So why dwell on it? Oof. Ugh. Okay, so our final thought is a bit heavy, but it is very important to discuss. So, Abby, why don't you start us off? So... Arlen is the embodiment of white ignorance, like we mentioned earlier in the episode. Like, she, she's like this little baby floating through life with <laughs> this little one-arm, one-leg baby floating through life with the lessons that she was taught early on before she was, like, plopped out into the desert. So mm-hmm. <laughs> she <laughs> she keeps those ideas and lessons close to her as she makes her way through her new life with the rest of the Bad Batch. And she doesn't trust black people. She groups Hispanic people into like one big group and assumes they're all Mexican. That was so cringe. I was like, oh my God, Reddit frickin' cringe-topia. She also asks Miami Man if his crimes are drug-related or gang-related. And when he... no. Yeah, I know. When he tells her that he's here illegally and he's from Cuba, she's like, oh, it's tropical. Is that near Hawaii? And... (sighs) 
I love I love that this gets called out in the film. And yes, absolutely. As Arlen continues her journey, she recognizes that the real oppressors are white, upper echelon members of society. And she's wrong and she knows it. And side note, I love that this calls out the education system mm. because this is a real thing that happens. Um, I went to school in upstate New York and there was this kid that uh, went to school with me. He was just a year younger than me. And uh, he was asking me um, about studying abroad because that was something I was interested in. And I said, yeah, like I'm going to go study in England for a semester. And he said, he goes, England, he goes, what language do they speak there? French. (gasps) And he was dead serious. He must have been, he was 18. It's so crazy to me that in this country, we have the resources and money and time to be able to educate everyone the way they should be educated, and we just don't. Right. It's not so much ignorance. I really do think a lot of it is because our our educational system in the United States is a complete and utter failure. It sucks. Quite honestly, I think Arlen being somebody who is ignorant but then like learns or at least tries to become better, I think that's what Amirpour's original vision was yeah. for this character. Yeah. She wanted to show this very ignorant woman, uneducated woman, realizing that she is this way and wanting to become better and learn more about the cannibals and their way of life. But. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But but that in itself is also extremely problematic because it's like the execution was not handled well and it came off as racist. And yeah, especially because Arlen kills a black woman in the film and a black man is villainized and shown trying to kidnap her, a white woman, which is so fucking problematic. Dude, I was shocked. Shook. To my core. I was like, I feel like I'm watching a movie from, like, the 40s. I mean, no, this is this is um, Birth of a Nation territory right here. Yeah. And, like, I mean, we talked kind of about Birth of a Nation in our Candyman episode. I'll link that one, too, actually. So you, might, you can all listen to that one, too. But this whole idea of making, villainizing black people with a white, female protagonist is yikes on bikes yeah yeah we'll get into this more in a bit abby you're gonna explain exactly what happened in a minute but chicago artist bianca unis confronted amirpour at a q a for the film in chicago and basically called her out and asked why she had all the black people in the film die yeah and in her interview with tiffany amirpour tried to justify the film and her vision And she said, everything is deliberate in the film. Yeah. And the thing is, I don't really get to say. She, meaning Uniz, can be upset by the film. That's her right. Once the film exists, cinema exists for everybody to engage with. It becomes theirs. I don't get to say, you can't think that. 
I get that. But I also think that, you know, as far as me and what I'm doing, I'm asking questions about human nature and about if one violent action justifies another. That's the deep moral fiber of what I'm thinking about in this world called the Bad Batch. Are people inherently good or bad? The system makes us into these things. Everybody in that film, every character has a fucked up reality. It's safe to say that. Everybody in our world has a story and a reality and a justification for how they feel and has gone through some fucked up shit, unquote. And I see what she's trying to get at. I I do. As an artist, I can see and as somebody who I'm sure she believes in free speech, like I absolutely see what she's trying to get at. But ultimately, she has failed. And I think she completely missed the point. I think R slash whoosh, it went right over her head. Uh, Yeah. I mean, to me, that sounds like an all lives matter argument. Oof. Yeah. Um, I mean, Eric Cohn rehashes the incident that happened after the Chicago viewing during a discussion of the film. And Amirpour was questioned by um, Bianca, the artist from Chicago that we mentioned earlier, um, and she's also a self-proclaimed goth of color, which is like cool as shit. <laughs> oh yeah, she's. I follow her on Instagram, and I'll link her her Instagram in the show notes. She's awesome. Yeah, she's great. Um, but yeah, she questions Amirpour about why all the black characters in the film die, and the article states. While one reading of The Bad Batch would find two outcasts, a one-armed woman and a vilified immigrant joining forces to take down an evil white man, Eunice wanted to know why Amirpour felt it was necessary for the black characters to perish. I found it offensive, she said, so I'm curious what was your message for it? In a video of the moment, Amirpour cocks her head, seemingly baffled by the response, and asks the moderator to repeat the question. As she would later explain, the filmmaker is 30% deaf. Finally, she offered a succinct response. Just because I give you something to look at doesn't mean I'm telling you what to see. The audience cheered, and Eunice turned to Twitter to further vent her frustrations. I have never felt such an embarrassment in my life, she wrote. Later that night, Amirpour checked her social media account, saw the complaints, and blocked Eunice. When Eunice called her out, Amirpour wrote, How am I supposed to respond to you calling my film anti-black? It's so crazy. It offended me, so I blocked you. Yeah, oh, but that's the thing. It's like, but but Eunice, Bianca, she was offended. So it's yeah. like, and the, you know what I mean? So here are these two women who are offended by each other's comments. And yeah. they never had a, a, they never had a conversation about it. Yeah, and... That's, like, the most important part, right? It's, like, you should be coming to an understanding. <laughs> but, like, this right. is this is obviously a really touchy subject because I'm speaking from the perspective of a privileged white woman. But, I mean, I think it's uncomfortable to be faced with questions like this when you are a non-white filmmaker addressing racial issues. And... I, I'm not right, sure because uh, for everyone who might not have listened to our "A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night" episode, like Amirpour is Iranian. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not sure if it's because Amirpour feels as if she's an authority on the subject because she is not white, 
But I think it's easy to get swept up in your own feelings and experiences and forget the struggles of other people, other races. This film, you know, it's a projection of the director's experiences, I think. And, you know, that's important, but it isn't more important than the experiences of people of color. Like, every experience plays a role. And like I said, it's touchy and uncomfortable to talk about, and I am speaking from a place of privilege, but, like, this is my interpretation of the film when it comes to the comments of racism that surround it. I can watch this and see it as a form of entertainment and maybe even enlightenment, but for people who experience this kind of treatment on a day-to-day basis, like, yeah, I can see why this movie leaves a bad taste in their mouth for sure. And I think that it's very important to acknowledge because, in my opinion, Bianca's feelings are super valid. Oh, absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head there because one person of color's experience and trauma is not going to be the same for another's. And I think Amirpour really missed the opportunity to sort of understand that and own it, you know? Yeah. She uses the excuse of art. And like I said earlier, like, I I, I get it like I get like as an artist like you're gonna create something that maybe not everybody likes but the fact that she said that it was intentional like everything in the film was intentional it was like so you're saying that the black people that you casted who were all killed like that was intentional like you intended to have people of color killed on screen like I don't know. It's and then you and then you explain it away like, well, it's art and I'm not going to tell you what to see. I don't know. It just it just rubs me the wrong way. Like hearing her say that, like, well, you know, or reading that she had said that it just bothers me. It seems like a cop out. And like you said, like, it's like, well, it's an all lives matter type argument. Right. Where it's like it, you know, it like she doesn't seem to care. And like she gets upset. She's like, well, I'm a brown woman. Like, I can't believe that she's saying that I'm racist. And it's like one of our uh, friends, I believe it was Kelly uh, from the podcast Spinsters of Horror. Uh, she said on our social media, she said she was like, this was such a weird, weird film to do after a girl walks home alone at night. And I agree. Like there are some aspects of this film that I do enjoy. And we kind of talked about that earlier but as a whole I think for the most part this film is sort of kind of just weird and and not in a good way like yeah I don't know like I said it's just really strange and I think there was a missed opportunity where these women could talk about it and they could kind of understand each other and hopefully maybe like I feel like if Anna Lily Amirpour was going to explain herself she should have said like look like I didn't think about it I mean I feel like that's what happened was that she casted these people she didn't think about it and she was just like you know it's art like that was her explanation but I really feel like she didn't think I don't think she I think she just casted whoever she thought was right for the role and they happened to be black and she didn't think about the consequences of that and then she tries to explain it away like I'm not going to tell you what to think I don't that's my personal opinion she's not going to listen to the show if she does she can tell me what it is because I just feel like explaining it like well it's art I'm not going to tell you what it is you know I just felt like that was really lazy ugh 
Anyway, uh, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. In the show notes, we have a link to all of the different places that are currently accepting donations that help support the Black Lives Matter movement. We also suggest that you give what you can to Trans Lifeline. That link is also in the show notes. And just an update to any new patrons, we aren't sending out any gifts currently because of COVID-19, but don't worry, hopefully soon we'll be sending out all of it. But really, thanks for all of your help supporting us. And um, truly, like, I don't know what we do without y'all. You're wonderful. So thank you so, so much. Yeah, and we know that times are tough right now. So if you like the show, you can also help out by following us on social media. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.